Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and as always, it's a great pleasure to have as my guest Ed Rogers, Ph.D., Chief Knowledge Officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. And by the way, a DJ uh, coming on October 28th, he'll be DJing and singing for a dance social activity in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome back to the show, Ed. How are you? Great. Good to talk with you again, Marcello, as always. It is always a pleasure, that's for sure. Uh, in, in a world that has uh, uh, too many disappointments and, and, and negative things happening in the headlines, it's always a pleasure to find someone you can talk to knowledgeably, uh, or they can talk to you knowledgeably anyway, and, um, and, you know, enjoy life and enjoy new discovery and exploration and uh, truth, uh, universal truth. Okay. I guess I'm, uh, yes, so, so you know, one is, speaking of the universe, I, one of the first things I want to talk to you about is the eclipse, because it's the first eclipse that has happened since I've known you, and while we couldn't see it very well in my location, I still did what was advised, went out with my smartphone and did a selfie, so I didn't get blinded over something I couldn't see. Anyway, from your chief knowledge officer, position at Goddard Space Flight Center, NASA. Give us some insight. Why was this eclipse uh, uh, something especially special? Which I think it was, yes? It was a phenomenal event. uh, And uh, I just want you to know that NASA arranged this, you know, specifically so that it could be seen over North America. Uh Uh, Yeah, no, no, I'm joking. We don't arrange the solar eclipses. They happen happen all by themselves. Yes. Uh, What we... What we uh, were able to do, of course, is, uh, of course, by by knowledge of that when it's going to happen, uh, make an event out of it and prepare people to be able to take advantage of uh, observing it uh, and observing it safely, of course. Um, and so, coming right across the, the, the right across the, the U.S. mainland provided, uh, you know, uh, as you said, unprecedented for many years opportunity for people to experience really the wonder of the universe. Uh, it's mm. easy to think 
life starts and stops, you know, at the end of my block or in my, yes. my town or my state. And we're really part of such a large universe that functions and operates, you know, doesn't care how we feel in the morning. Mm. The moon and the sun and the earth are going to do their thing, and we're along for the ride. So as a human population riding on this earth, we might as well enjoy it, be aware of it, celebrate together, and uh, it was just a phenomenal event. Uh, more people watch that than any other event uh, we've ever uh, you know, highlighted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it helped bring, you know, which is exciting to us, it helped bring science and space and, and as I said, the planets and Earth and Moon and stuff, you know, helped bring it right down to, you know, people's, you know, backyards yes. and, you know, getting out of their car to look at the sun with this special glasses and all that and people who drove down to you know, a different state where they could experience the full eclipse for maybe once in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was a touch point for a lot of people, I think. Yes. And, uh, and that made us, uh, you know, obviously very happy because for NASA people, we live and breathe how the universe works and we're trying to figure it out. Uh, eclipses, we've kind of figured out, you know, we figured them out when they've been known for centuries, you know, when they happen and sort of what they are. And as you know, they're a uh, always had a sort of spooky aura to them, you know, yes. in ancient uh, ancient uh, cultures, and uh, they're not as spooky today, but they're still neat. Yes. So we were just uh, delighted to see the huge response of people to go out and say, "I was there," and yes. you know, I was a piece of that. It's kind of like touching the sky. It is, you know. It really is, Ed. The only thing I, and my experience of a non-eclipse experience, that the only thing that comes close is not even close, and that was I crossed the Atlantic Ocean on the QE2 a few years ago, and I remember coming out of deck early one morning before anyone was up, it seemed, and we there was no land in sight, and I just realized... Gee, how insignificant, you know, and yet somehow I'm considered important in all of this to some universal power, whatever we call it or however we think of it. And then when we go to your sphere with NASA, it's out of this world, quite literally. Uh, It's even a bigger sense of being a part of something that is so, as you say, I love the way you put it, the moon and the stars and and the rotation of the uh, planets, uh, they, that, that all continues no matter what we do here, it seems. Uh, that's a Pretty good much. thing, yes? <laughs> yeah, the other interesting uh, perspective to think about, which we've talked about, you know, perhaps uh, humans reaching Mars in our lifetime. Yes, yes. If you think what Mars looks like in the night sky, you get up and you look at Mars and you see a, you know, brighter than other dots, yes. but still just a dot in the mm-hmm. sky, maybe a reddish tint to it, if yes. it depends on how you're seeing it. And if you go to Mars, guess what the Earth looks like for you from Mars? Oh, tell me. A little dot in the sky (laughs) that may be slightly bluish, but it's slightly brighter than some other dots. But it's just a little dot in the sky and one of the few dots that moves around in a regular pattern. You know, and as the ancient astronomers figured out, there's something weird about those that move around as opposed to the stars that are always in the same, you know, relative place to us. And uh, the, the Earth doesn't look much different to Mars from Mars than uh, Mars looks to uh, us from here. It's that big. Did you did you almost say Martians? <laughs> <laughs> almost. No, but, but if we get a person on Mars, technically there'll be a Martian. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the point's well taken in any case. I know, back on Earth for a moment, um, I know you have uh, lived and taught uh, overseas and in, in uh, uh, various uh, what we might consider exotic lands on Earth. Tell us, what are your thoughts about women suddenly being given the right to drive in Saudi Arabia? I don't think, uh, my at least people I know, don't seem to be as impressed or as excited or even noting it as, as much as I did, and I know you have, uh, but that's a huge yeah. development, yes? It's a very big step, and I think I think you're right. It's a little hard for us and, and where we sit in our uh, American Western culture view to think that that's a significant step. Most people would describe it as long overdue, for mm, example, rather yes. than as a major sport step of progress. Uh, and uh, I grew up in Saudi Arabia in the 60s and 70s, spent many years there, and uh, witnessed a lot of the change, almost, I want to say the word violent, but I don't mean violent in terms of violence of mm -hmm. pain and human suffering, but violent to cultural things and expectations that be, just because of the pace of change. It's yes. a very rapid, rapid change. As I think uh, we, we discussed, you know, my father had students who lived in tents and became engineers all in one generation. Mm. I mean, they've moved on, obviously, since then. They've built big cities and educated their population and whatnot. But the changes have been so rapid. And so this is clearly a change. It's overdue. Uh, but it's, it's more of a, I see it more as a, uh, an opening. So yes. the beginning of an opening that will lead to many things. So they've worked very hard to build schools. I mean, women in, in those countries get more educated than they used to. Um, mm. uh, you know, and so one of the issues was if you get an education, what can you do with it? Yes. If you can't move around and you can't go to work or teach at a school or get there or get out and about to make you know contacts, business contacts, do things. And so it was sort of one of these dominoes that was, in my opinion, bound to fall because as you educate people and raise their expectations of contributing to society, they need a means to do so. Exactly. So in that context, allowing them to drive is going to open a, uh, another, uh, another avenue, you know, open another gate, if you will, on the series of gates that need to be opened. And then that way, I think it can be looked at as progress uh, for them. And certainly, I think, you know, we would want to, just from a human being point of view, support yes. those women who are going to be going through that transition as fellow human beings. That's going to be a big transition. Yes. Maybe uh, maybe we can follow their example and actually uh, pass the Equal Rights Amendment in America. But I don't want to get too political. <laughs> but, I, I, <laughs> but I do want to ask you, um, as non-politically as I can be, uh, given our current uh, political environment, are you feeling any, it's NASA, feeling any um, changes uh, in their uh, budget and their support, financial support for scientific work and uh, achieving objectives, scientific objectives? Um, so NASA's budget has actually been very good. Good. Uh, in terms of total dollars, uh, the uh, NASA is very pleased you know, that the administration has uh, shown confidence in NASA's work to give them the budget uh, that, that they need in terms of total dollars. 
uh, is not the top line budget number was 19.1 billion. You know, that mm-hmm. was recently done, which is not a small amount. So there's not a not been a wholesale over uh, you know reduction in the budget or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what happens in any budget and administration? You know, there's always uh, realignments or readjustments. Sometimes that involves cuts. NASA has not really been cut okay. in terms of overall. Um, there's been some realignment of, among some missions here, some emphasis there. Not a huge, significant amount that changes overall NASA's footprint, if you will. Okay. Um, but, you know, always some adjustments and tuning and some missions uh, have been uh, realigned. And so some of that has caused some, you know, angst at certain levels. And that's understandable because mm-hmm. if your mission is being cut, you're clearly not happy mm-hmm. but other people may be getting more money or maybe getting their missions to go ahead and they may be you know happy so uh, that's sort of the general picture um of what's happening and generally we're moving ahead with i'd say most of everything that we've been working on we're obviously looking for you know a new uh, what the long-term direction is, will be for the agency and that that is yet to be all sort of worked out mm-hmm. And, and will be in time, as it usually is, uh, through these transitions. It always takes you know, months, not uh, not weeks, to yes. kind of get to there, get to a new overall vision. Meanwhile, we're working on all the things we're working on, you know, checking out what's going on in our own Earth environment, uh, working on finding out what's going on in the depths of the universe and where we came from, and is there anybody else out there? Hello, mm. yes. hello. You know, so, <laughs> You give great in-depth answers, and uh, I, I wonder. This may seem like a silly question, but remember, you're you're speaking to a TV director, not a NASA expert. But um, you, we speak of, or you speak of, uh, uh, Earth science, and is there a distinction, or I should say, if you wouldn't mind explaining the distinction between Earth science, let me make that assumption, and universal or universe science, as in space exploration science. Um, 
and then there's some other other uh, directorates. But so the science mission directorate has four divisions, the way they're organized of science. Heliophysics, study of the sun, astrophysics, how the universe works, planetary science, which is missions to planets, primarily mm-hmm. Mars, and of course it would be the moon and others, mm-hmm. and, and then Earth science. So Earth science is one of those divisions. So from a budget point of view, there's money allocated to the different science divisions. And as you can imagine, there's healthy and good discussions about what's priority and where that money should go, where the next dollar should be spent. Mm. And so it's divided up, and then they each have missions, and there's some Earth missions, primarily satellites orbiting the Earth, right, measuring things about the Earth. There's missions that are planetary in nature, going out to Venus or Mars Mm -hmm. or chasing an asteroid. Mm -hmm. And there's astrophysics-type missions that are like James Webb or W-First, other missions that are peering into the origins of the universe and studying galaxies Mm -hmm. and looking for planets around other stars and figuring out how stars came here, black holes, all that kind of stuff. And uh, heliophysics, of course, which is looking to the sun. We have an exciting mission going to the sun. Uh, It's hard to go to the sun, and we won't use the age-old joke, you'll go at night or anything like that. We don't go at night. We we go right in the daytime, right while it's bright and shiny. But it's clearly a very unique environment to try to get near the sun to take Mm. measurements of it. So those divisions help balance the science needs so that they're, you know, they each, they each get, I don't want to say equal, because it's not equal budget-wise, but they mm-hmm. get uh, fair treatment and, and the, the priorities get addressed. So the science communities can advocate for what they think is the, the next most exciting or interesting question to answer, and that can be appropriately prioritized, and then we can build a mission to go try to answer that. So there's, there's always a healthy discussion going around those. But yes, Earth Science is... So it's one of the divisions of the Science Mission Directorate, the way NASA is organized. Wow. All right. Um, well, I'm glad I was smart enough to ask that question. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. I, we're going to um, we'll take a break in a second, but I, I just want to touch on one of my favorite stories that you've told me, and that is early on in your tenure there uh, at NASA, um, the um, you were sitting around a, a table with, well, dare I say, geniuses in their field, and you, as the new guy on the block, or the still are the chief knowledge officer at Goddard Space Flight Center. If you recall the story, maybe because I you do the punchline better than I do, but they made it clear that they, you were there to tell them what. <laughs> do you remember the story? Yeah, so- I think you're referring to uh, when I met with the, uh, our former deputy director and I was uh, proposing a workshop where we did some lessons learned on how yes. we've done missions and what we could learn from that and so our project managers could go you know, forward with some wisdom lessons from what we previously learned. And uh, I asked him, uh, how do you want to do this? And uh, this guy is a PhD physicist, you know, deputy director. Yes. He, he put his hands on the desk. He put his hands on the desk and looked at me and said, "Ed, we hired you to tell us how to do this. Yes. We're, we're science. You tell us how to organize this stuff and how to learn these lessons." And it was a lesson for me that that is in fact why they hired me, and so I needed to step up and do that. Excellent. All right. We're going to take a short break. We will be back. Stay with us. This only gets more and more exciting. We're talking to Ed Rogers, Ph.D., Chief Knowledge Officer of the Goddard Space Flight Center of NASA. 
uh, who, we want to remind you, will be DJing and singing for a dance social activity in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday, October 28th. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about more things, including Saturn. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Hollywood movies work because they push buttons that create predictable emotional reactions. Today's film is a polished production from Mexico and pushes many of the same buttons. Under the Same Moon is about the human consequence of inequity. It is set in the world of illegal aliens under the constant fear of capture. Rosario has become an illegal immigrant in L.A. to support her son, Carlito, who has remained with Grandma in Mexico. When Grandma dies, Carlito, now 10 years old, decides to smuggle himself across the border to search for his mother. Carlito and Rosario have always talked on the phone every Sunday, and she has carefully described to him the little phone booth she regularly uses for the call. His only hope for finding her is to find that phone booth before Sunday. He knows that once she finds out he is missing, she may never return to the same booth, and he would never find her. His journey is a tense one, rich in character development, detail, and danger. There are many gritty and troubling films set in the world of the illegal alien. Under the Same Moon provides us with a touching opportunity to consider the whole subject in the context of a richly entertaining film. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Again, my guest is Ed Rogers, Ph.D., Chief Knowledge Officer of Goddard Space Flight Center of NASA. And we have been talking about a great many things, uh, budgeting and, and life and uh, how, where we fit in within Earth science and within the great universe, both known and unknown. I'm just curious, because I've heard some of the reactions from friends in New York and in, in D.C. too, for that matter, about, I mean, non-NASA people, of course, about the Cassini's descent into Saturn, some not quite understanding uh, that that wasn't an accident. It didn't crash. Can you give us a little enlightenment there, Ed? Yeah. Uh, no, it didn't crash in the sense that we think of a crash as an accident that, you know, something that wasn't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, it was designed uh, that way. So what happens is satellites that orbit a planet, whether they're satellites orbiting the Earth or we've had satellites orbit moon, for example, mm -hmm. or, I mean, or, or satellites that orbit other planets, like Cassini is orbiting Saturn. Uh, there's what's called, uh, you, uh, you need fuel on board, mm -hmm. and you've all seen it in the space movies, those little tiny rockets that shoot out the side that kind of make you turn left or right or yes. up or down, a little control rockets. And uh, they keep the, they do two things. They, they help maintain the satellite's orbit which means that it decays over time and slowly might decrease or get out of the path that you want it to be taking. So you do course corrections over time. Mm -hmm. They do this all the time, for example, with the International Space Station to yes. keep it up in its orbit so it doesn't sink or drift out of the orbit it should be in. Uh, but the space station can be resupplied, right? So, yes. Uh, but the satellites, when you send it to Saturn, it's a one-shot one mission. Whatever fuel is taken with it is what it's going to have. Mm. It also uses fuel to orient itself. So if it wants to point its antenna, 
seen took measurements, uh, data, you know, science data, collected lots of science data, and we do this with most missions nowadays, mm -hmm. and it stored that information on board the satellite. Then it pointed itself to Earth with its communication you know, dish gotcha. and transmitted and downloaded all that data all at once over you know, some period of time, and then it went back to collecting science data. That's more efficient than trying to do them both at the same time or streaming it directly through. Mm. And so you need fuel for that, too. So over time, you use up these little puffs of fuel. Cassini operated for 13 years wow. around Saturn and uh, did phenomenal science. And it was, you know, out of fuel, and, and it needed to be ended. And so it was decided, instead of just leaving it floating around up there dead, we could actually do uh, measurements as it descended through the uh, uh, Saturn atmosphere, mm -hmm. which would be new and never done before, mm -hmm. and collect the measurements on the way so it would be valuable science data right up until the last minute when it, when, when it went dark. Okay. And so that was an actual intentional controlled descent into Saturn to actually get the last bits of science we could possibly squeeze from a phenomenal mission. Fantastic. And a great explanation. Thank you. It's just wow, Ed. It always is. But okay. So are we going back to, I mean, because the way you're talking, it seems like there are a lot of unmanned uh, or woman uh, flights planned, but are we returning to human space flight uh, anytime soon? Yes, anytime soon is sort of what's the debate. What do you mm. mean by soon? Yes, within the number of years, mm -hmm. uh, not, not tomorrow. It's a, it's a big enterprise, a big activity. And of course, as you know, there's now competition. Yes. Uh, you know, from uh, from commercial providers who are trying to uh, do the same. They've already made uh, great inroads into the first the first commercial enterprises were set up to put in commercial satellites. So yes. there's a huge market for commercial satellites, and that is pretty much all handled, you know, by the uh, commercial providers. Mm -hmm. And and then they got into providing things for scientific and NASA purposes, and they've done some of that, uh, launching things that uh, go. And then they got into supplying the space station, as you know, they have uh, resupply rockets that take material to the space station. Yes, and they've demonstrated they can do that. And they're the final frontier, if you will for commercial providers is to take humans to space. And that, of course, is what all the buzz is about now. Mm -hmm. But NASA is also building uh, the ability to take humans to space for, for long durations and hopefully potential interplanetary exploration, i.e. the moon and Mars mm -hmm. uh, in particular. And uh, we'll get there. It'll be still a few years, but they're, they're designing those new rockets and we'll be testing them over the next couple of years and we'll see that happen. Uh, meanwhile, the space station is continuing with humans occupying space and, uh, and and doing all the work they do there. But I think I think we're eager to get back to moving out. Yes. And particularly moving beyond Earth uh, Earth orbit. Although we have much to learn still from Earth orbit. Yes. It's not by any means exhausted everything there is to learn by circling the Earth. But that human itch. Uh, to get out there uh, is almost insatiable. Yes. And I believe NASA people feel it just like everybody else. We just happen to know how hard it is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, so we, the new missions are to search to for planets beyond, or actually you know they're planets beyond our solar system. Uh, that's been a recent discovery, more or less recently, in, in terms of uh, NASA time. 
Uh, so there are new missions working on, thinking about, planning even now to uh, to do that very thing. You you call them exoplanets. So so this is how science works. You you hit right on it. Um, things that people don't really even think of as being real, mm-hmm. uh, like planets around other stars, we didn't know that they existed. We couldn't see them. And uh, although we had many science fiction movies about fantastical planets and blue people and living on, you know, green men and whatever else, living on distant galaxies and, you know, a Star Trek or something like that, discovering uh, it was thought about. And that's not that different from the fact that people thought about black holes mm. as if it was some theoretical thing we'd never seen. Mm. We didn't know they actually existed or not. But slowly we did missions that sort of found out, hey, look, we can see something there we didn't see before. And now we look a little closer. Oh, look, it actually turns out black holes are very common in mm. uh, centers of most galaxies, by, as far as we can tell. And they're massive and huge. And so now we have a whole new field of trying to figure out what they're all about and how they work and figuring out new ways. And that's driving all kinds of new needs for detectors and new ways of doing science. And the same thing is true with planets. We didn't realize that there, I mean, people conceived of the idea. We saw it in science fiction movies, but Mm -hmm. we couldn't actually see things until people came up with some innovative techniques for detecting the presence of planets around uh, distant stars. And so we've done that. It's like, wow, it turns out there's a lot of these. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of planets around other stars. Now, going to them is a different question. Yes, yes. We're, we're going to go to Mars, perhaps in our lifetime. Uh, going to another planet around another star in another solar system, you know, where it's light years away, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're not anywhere close to that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would take a long time to get there, longer than any of our lifetimes, even if we could, could do it. Mm-hmm. So that's... Uh, that's another. That's still a science fiction question, but just discovering them and seeing whether there's a possibility. And so there's two avenues, really, looking very distant, how there's stars and planets where we're looking for faint images, and then look, look, there's a shadow here, there's a planet there, you know, that kind of thing. And the other aspect is looking in our solar system on, on bodies which are primarily moons of Saturn and Jupiter that might have the possibility of life-like or life-friendly conditions. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and so should we go look there? There we can go. We can go to moons of some, uh, moons of Saturn, sure. some of these icy moons. Yeah, so we're going to go do both of those. All right. And I'm sure we'll find out, we'll have new questions, you know, next year. Okay. You know, I, I in my lifetime, I think um, my perception is that the because uh, you mentioned the public and Congress and how they support NASA. But I have seen the public kind of swing from expecting too much, unrealistic expectations to being sort of nonchalant or not paying much attention. Do you do you see the pendulum swing often, if I'm correct in that analysis, or uh, is the popularity of space travel in particular, but NASA in general, um, uh, relatively consistent with the public, do you think? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I'll be the best person to answer it. I, I think a couple of things happen. There's, there's clearly a connection uh, between what the public sees in you know, Hollywood science fiction movies mm. and their interest in NASA. Uh-huh. So I'll give you two Gravity, great, great movie. The Martian, a great movie. People see that stuff, and they and their next question, you know, when they get the next beer, you know, after yeah. they've done talking about the movie, 
when they're on the second round. Yes. But, and what they're doing? Oh. I mean, there's a natural follow-on connection there, and uh, and that's not bad mm-hmm. because people are thinking about space and humans going there, what it would be like. You know what you would miss, how long it would take, what happens when things go wrong. You know all that kind of stuff, and that's all Hollywood, and that's great. And uh, and but it makes people think, wow, you know, are we really doing that? And they find out two things: one sort of positive, and one sort of you know doubting. And the the positive one is they find out what NASA's really been up to, which is a lot of really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it makes people, and that's helpful because the more people know about what we're actually doing and finding out they generally are more supportive like that's really cool yes yes totally on the other hand uh we know how hard it is and it's not as easy we don't have special effects generators that can make (laughs) appear in art we have to actually do the physics the engineering the design the safety the testing you know and and make sure we're going to get there and get back again safely and all that stuff which takes a lot longer than it does to make a movie. Yes. And so the expectation can get a little ahead of reality. But, you know, in the big picture, that's okay if people have high expectations of NASA. I, I think NASA people like having high yes. expectations of them. Yeah. They, they, it draws people to rise up to those expectations and, and, and try to deliver. And that's when you accomplish amazing things like getting to the moon. That's true. Uh, and, you know, yeah. yesterday's science fiction is uh, uh, NASA's reality today in many cases. Yeah, except it's not quite yesterday. It's like last year or yeah. last decade. But, yes. but that's true. Yeah, the general sentiment is true. So, if anything, we just need to be a little patient uh, and, and then a little better job of maybe actually explaining to people what we are doing so it doesn't look like we're moving too slow. Gotcha. You are discovering how the universe actually works, which in itself, that's kind of a powerful phrase. It's easy to say. Universe actually works. How does the universe actually work? But you at NASA spend every day working on uh, explanation, definition, answer to that uh, huge uh, uh, goal, shall we say. Uh, So where does that leave you thinking uh, where humankind will be in a thousand years? Do you have any... Uh, thoughts? <laughs> well, I hope we'll still be on Earth. Yes. Meaning I hope Earth won't be decimated. I, I know what you mean, yes. There might also be other places, but I, I would hope we'd still have our home because we, we'd have learned to take care of it properly and take care of each other uh, uh, as our prime directive. And uh, we, I'm not sure if we're getting there or not. It all depends on how you look at the glass. But uh, we're, we've certainly populated and filled the Earth uh, we, of course, are learning to get along with each other, hopefully more each day. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it, uh, it, it raises the questions of, you know, how do you satiate the human desire for exploration and curiosity? Yes. I actually think, you, I don't think you do satiate it. Mm. I don't think it's ever, if you could satiate it and put it out, I think we'd cease being human. Mm. Uh, I, something about the way we're constructed we're meant to always ask, and why? I mean, just look at yes. a small child, right? Yes. They learn and be, become human. You become a human by asking why. Exactly. Why do we do that? And so I think even as we grow up, we get more polite about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we know not to ask in the supermarket, why is that person over there doing that? Yeah. You know, like your kids would do, and they're unrestrained. 
but we but in a bigger context we we don't hesitate to ask okay so we went out and we found there's a black hole at the center of most galaxies mm. oh, that's really cool mm. why why is it there mm-hmm. why doesn't it do this why doesn't it you know do something else oh you know uh and so then and, and then the second one is how can we answer that? Mm-hmm. What can we do to answer that question? At least a little bit. And so all these heads are scratching, people are scratching their heads, putting their heads together, their best thinking, and trying to figure out. And what is generated, And one of the, if you want to think about it, one of the things NASA really fundamentally generates mm-hmm. is good questions yes. about the universe. Yes. If we didn't have a good question, we would never get a mission. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be answering anything. We're not just flying around taking pictures. Mm-hmm. There's a question that needs to be answered, and getting that question formulated and articulated is the most difficult and the most really valuable work because then it becomes an execution issue. How do we go do that? That's the hard technical engineering and science work, but getting those questions figured out is really fundamental. And, you know, the public helps us with that mm. because... Because everybody has questions, and what the public and what everybody on the you know common people are asking helps us realize what is driving human desire to explore. Yes. And if we can put our finger on that, you know, then we're helping everybody answer that question together. Excellent. I want to shift a, a little, Ed, not from you, but uh, uh, from NASA, maybe. I. I, we've discussed before that you've bought a house in Charlottesville, Virginia, and will and have and will continue to spend uh, more and more time as as NASA permits, I guess. But um, yes. the, the recent summer events, particularly the rally on August twelfth in Charlottesville, Virginia, how, if at all, uh, has that impacted your personal life, your personal choices, personal decisions about? of relocating to Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, yeah, I mean, a very unfortunate event, obviously, a tragedy, especially in the death of the woman. But yes. Um, but we were actually in the area at the time. Oh. Uh, we were not downtown. We had no plan to go downtown, so mm-hmm. we weren't avoiding it. We were just visiting some friends and relatives nearby. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, Marcello, my wife is ready to retire any day. Uh-huh. She's ready. To, she's ready to move to Charlottesville tomorrow, <laughs> um, and it, and it's just a, a beautiful locale. I don't think it had uh, that particular event had really any effect on uh, our desire or actually friends I talked with here in the Washington area who uh, have been discussing where they might want to retire or buy a vacation home or something like that. Um, I've been talking about how. Showing, I was showing pictures the other day to some of my friends mm-hmm. of our house and where we're going to live, and they were just like, wow, maybe we should come look down there, and that's exactly how we got interested. Some people shared that with us as well. Charlottesville has so many things uh, going for it that I think, like other areas of the world that get you know an event that comes to them, and you know, Paris comes to mind, yes. uh, Barcelona more recently this summer, and, you know, these things happen, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's the, the, the people who actually live there and make the community that give it its flavor. Yes. And uh, certainly had so much fun, whether we're down in Charlottesville going to a ballroom dance or going out for dinner or going to the square or attending a food festival or a wine festival or, or just going for a hike in the countryside. 
uh, all of those things uh, Charlottesville has in spades. And I think we'll really overcome uh, that, that particular event. Um, and uh, I, I don't see that changing in the near future. Okay. All right, then. Well, we, we probably need to call it a day for now. We've been talking to Ed Rogers, Ph.D., Chief Knowledge Officer of Goddard Space Flight Center, NASA, and a reminder that uh, he will be DJing and singing for a dance social activity in Charlottesville, Virginia, on Saturday, October 28th. Any out-of-this-world message you want to leave us with, Ed, before we go? And I think the more we respect each other, the more we'll respect our environment and we'll respect the universe that we live in yes. and we'll learn more about it together. And I think that will just continue to generate enthusiasm and stimulation for our innate curiosity. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ed. It's always, you know, it's always a joy and, and an education to uh, talk to you. And uh, I wish you all the best and all the best to NASA and all the missions that we can't talk about, as well as the ones that we have discussed. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you on October 28th. How's that? Thanks. Thanks, Marcello. Thanks for your support. It's great to get our word out there. We're proud of what we're doing. Thanks for helping. You got it. Bye now. Stay with us, as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. The tagline for one of our favorite indies, How often do you find the right person? The obvious answer is its title, Once. It's the simplest love story imaginable. Boy meets girl, boy and girl fall in love. These two lovers, known only as the guy and the girl, are magnetic. He's a busker who earns a living fixing vacuum cleaners while pouring his heart into writing and singing his songs on the streets of Dublin. She is a Czech immigrant who needs her vacuum repaired. And by the way, she's a piano player who writes and sings her own songs. The characters are lovable and charming, the simple plot lines are unforced, and the ending is emotionally challenging, touching, and believable. And let's not forget the magnificent music. A Grammy Award-winning soundtrack, including Falling Slowly, which won the 2007 Academy Award for Best Original Song. It took years to get this touching little love story filmed, ultimately on a skeleton budget. It has now been adapted into a Broadway musical. Once is an oft-expressed excuse for the creative artist. I'll start to work once this happens or once that happens. Thankfully, once did happen. Feed your heart. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Trump nuclear bluster, a lose-lose. Colluding with the 16th anniversary of America's turn at Afghanistan, we are engaged in a great civil war to endure as a nation through racial prejudice, sexual bigotry, and domestic terrorism. 
gun violence targeting women and children now intensified by military-styled automatic weapons raining down wholesale massacre and serial mass murder on a home front with short-term memory. Regardless of race, creed, heritage, age, sexual preference, or political persuasion, more Americans were shot to death in Las Vegas Sunday, October 1st, 2017, than have been killed in America by radical Islamic terrorists in the last 10 years. Growing up, holidays were loud, packing uncles and aunts, drinking, smoking, shouting, rifle, and shotgun owners, all skilled, if not avid, hunters, ensuring I mastered both M14 and 16 in basic training. Uncle Gino, however, had already taught me to respect guns, because once weapon and shooter were united, each were equally responsible for the Union's conclusion. Since 1967, more Americans have been killed by guns than in all the wars in which America was involved since our Revolutionary War. And still, conservatives, now is not the time to discuss it. NRA, more good men with guns. Responsible gun owners. Background checks, maybe. Schools, armed police handcuffing and arresting children. Fed up Americans. Repeal the Second Amendment. Media and pollsters. Is America headed in the right direction? Arguably beyond the illusion of handgun-induced home security and the adrenaline rush accompanying killing a defenseless animal, stonewalling and ignoring the body count in American killing fields, concerts, nightclubs, movie theaters, parking lots, churches, schools, petitions us, to be the people's storm, beckoning the wise to expose GOP NRA as accessories after the fact. While Trump and guns are inexorable parts of America's global definition, they are not the measure of heroism or liberty, but rather enablers of violent death. But the direction of any nation is determined by the moral fiber of its citizens. Yes, America is moving in the right direction. Uniformed shooting of unarmed men of color. Institutionalized bigotry at the DOJ against LGBTQ Americans. Domestic and foreign gerrymandering of our electoral system. Nonetheless, the issue of controlling gun violence is more about the 2008 Supreme Court misinterpretation of the Second Amendment and less about honoring our Bill of Rights guarantees less about individual liberty, and more about the exhilaration some feel when armed for intimidation. In 1775, Lexington and Concord fired up a new nation, but by 2016, far too many had forgotten the end goal of Valley Forge was a United States of America, sans standing army. Now, we the people need stop wringing our hands, acting like we don't know the difference between principle and Pence patriotic pretense, and declare ourselves the calm eye centering the storm, firing 18th century caste system thinking, because we are more than the symbols we are constitutionally guaranteed the right to venerate or not. Because in desperate times, desperation cajoles common sense into nonsensical choices regarding who gets to possess American nuclear football. We foolheartedly expected solutions from a rhetorical barker and endangered ourselves by lying to ourselves about liars. 
Guns are not an extension of freedom, honor, nor human hands. They're just the end of life waiting to happen. The fault lies not in our NFL stars, but in constituents who traded Lincoln for Nixon, McConnell, Paul Ryan, and government is the problem, allowing fake patriots to transform America the beautiful into the land of the trumped. According to Bob Hope, New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker famously said, The voters always get what they deserve. I wasn't the only chump in this city. It took a lot of you to elect me. We honor old glory by preserving reason, protecting human life, and defending ourselves against cokeheads red-mapping our voting machines. Confederate statues Breitbart, Representative Tim Murphy, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Harvey Weinstein, and Donald Trump are our reality check. Controlling gun violence is not just about sales, recreation, or politics. Like opiate addiction, gender equality, and Trump Puerto Rico and North Korea responses, gun violence is an American value that has become a moral bloodstain. The truth about guns and people is, people discriminate, yes, but guns will kill anybody. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.